I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. For official purposes, everyone has a number. Yours is number six. I am not a number. I am a person. Six of one, half a dozen of another. Well, Glenn. Hey, pal. It's our first podcast. Yes, I mean there was one that was kind of uh, created in the uh, ether that may or may not see the light of day, but uh, oh, it's it's going to see the light of day. Okay, all right. On that episode, we talked about a lot of things about the first episode of this uh, show, which probably shouldn't have done, and because <laughs> we're going to be talking about that first episode now. This, this show, what what show? That would be uh, the Prisoner, Chris Klimek. Um hmm. It's a allegorical tale of a man fighting against society and weather balloons. Yes, um, and and in our homage to uh, the the sort of uh, scattershot nature of that show's production and eventual release, um, we are making episodes uh, in a different sequence in which they will be released because uh, that's that's how it went down mm-hmm. with the prisoner Absolutely. back in back in '67. I remember it, not at all. Yeah, it's even before my time. Let's back up for a second here. You know, I, I, I think it was going on, it was nigh on four years ago, pal, that you said to me, you know, the 54th anniversary of The Prisoner <laughs> is, is, is coming right up, buddy. Uh, so if we want to capitalize on that 54th anniversary heat, we better get cracking. Yeah. And, uh, and at last we have. Yeah, yeah. It's so, you know, it's kind of a heat death. <laughs> it's <laughs> sort of a, it's kind of cool yes. now, uh, this news peg, but uh, it's still a peg. You can still hang a, a boater hat that's on it. That's right. It's a, a peg like Simon. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, welcome. Welcome to the podcast where we take this unclassifiable and unforgettable television series and we push it, stamp it, file it, brief it, debrief it, and number it. We're going to talk McGoohans. We're going to talk MacGuffins. Our inquiry into this still perplexing document is not of a degree partial. It is not of a degree piecemeal. Uh-uh. It is not of a degree casual. Glenn, what is it? It's a degree absolute. That's right. Although I'm now thinking about it now, now that you said it, McGuins and McGuffins would make a pretty good title too. So, <laughs> yeah, well, you know that that's uh, you. You already turned me down for for unmutual, which was uh, yeah. a, another title I floated, and uh, you, in in truly unmutual fashion, mm-hmm. said no. Yeah, not not. I'm not. I wasn't feeling that one. Uh, but a degree absolute. I think on the show they just say degree absolute, but we, we're trying to say, we're trying to get an all-definite article on it. We want to get that the Batman uh-huh. Abs- energy. Absolutely. <laughs> Batman, Joker, all definite articles. Okay. So the way we're going to break this down, I think, is I will be the nerdy guy who did some research and kind of talk, uh, do some behind-the-scenes uh, BS, and then uh, we'll, we'll go through the episode, and we'll talk about, you know, in that... Um, in Limbo episode, we talked about how this show came about, the kind of uh, landscape, the kind of cultural landscape uh, from the soil, the cultural soil from which it grew. And um, the thing that everybody should just keep in mind is that um, McGowan at the time of this show's filming was an international television star because of the show Danger Man in the UK and Secret Agent here in the mm-hmm. States. Uh, but he had been playing it for a while. He had been doing that show for a while, and he was tired of playing John Drake, the Secret Agent character of that show. And uh, he had been talking to the script editor of that show, is uh, George Mark Steen, who um, 
was a successful novelist at the time, a spy novelist in, in particular, mm -hmm. who basically had some connections in the biz, uh, the spy biz, that is. And uh, he approached McGowan with this idea that he had heard about of a rest home of sorts, or a resort for retired spies, where they would be safe and uh, they'd have their information protected. Uh, and apparently, McGowan became hugely obsessed with that image with that thought so much so that he basically quit danger man uh and left everybody kind of high and dry he <laughs> they had been working on another what they call series we would call season and uh it, that's that's confusing it's very confusing uh, it's very confusing okay and we'll have this confusion but what do, yeah like a, and if i ordered chips yes what, exactly uh, what would what would end up on my plate Glenn? yeah I, yeah I and uh if you order a boot you're gonna get a trunk so they had produced two episodes of this next series, this next season, uh, of Danger Man, uh, and it was the first that they had actually produced episodes in color. So the budget was already that much bigger, and McGowan just said, nope, not doing it anymore, tired. So they stopped production on Danger Man. <laughs> and what they later did was they took those two episodes and combined them into a television movie called Koroshi, um, which you can see now, and it's a it's an odd little thing. It's a whole uh, series of episodes, two episodes set. And in that Japan. that that actually is, uh, at, at least at the time we're we're recording this, is on Amazon Prime. Is I it? Mean, who knows uh, what Amazon gives? Amazon can take Certainly away. But true. Uh, but yes, I I watched some of it last night. <laughs> and, and no 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 no, that's that's not a reflection of my my level of interest. Okay. You know, there there was just other stuff going on. Yeah. But uh, but it's it's uh, you know check your check your Amazon Prime. Yep. If you're curious. For the last gasp of Danger Man, and and so Lou Grade was the head of ITC, the network that uh, Danger Man was on, and he didn't want to let McGowan out of his stable, because um, again he was a big star. So McGowan came in for a meeting. He had brought a treatment, uh, some script outlines, and photos of this weird little village in Wales that he said would make a good filming location. So Lou Grade ordered 13 episodes, and the budget was £75,000 per, which is about $190,000, uh, which was phenomenally how many, high. How many stone is that? That's okay. You're gonna you're, you're sticking with the <laughs> with the Brit speak. All right. Well, uh, uh, bubble and squeak. <laughs> Sorry. Bubble and squeak. I say unto you, Chris. I, Glenn, I was born in Kansas. It's it's farther away from England, from where where you were born. That's true. I think that's true. Right. So uh, so I you 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 gotta bear with me here. Understood. Understood. Uh, so he was making two thousand pounds, about five thousand bucks per week, and he got a share of the profits, and that made him, according to this one book I read, uh, the highest paid actor on television. Now, humble brag. It was a, Glenn read a book. I read a book. It was a British book, so maybe highest paid actor on television in UK. Maybe I'm not sure about that. Uh, and he was um, a kind of petty despot. It, it became because he was <laughs> running the whole thing. Uh, he reportedly banned anyone on set from saying the word television because he thought people on television cut corners, and we're never going to cut a corner. Uh, and it makes I, I love him. I just I just want to say that's it's my my kind of tyrant. My kind of tyrant, like a guy who uh, looks down his nose at television. I mean, I can at the time. I guess you could theoretically. <laughs> But yeah, there was it was before prestige TV. Um, yes, I actually I want to derail your narrative just for a second do. here because I did I did trouble myself to look up what the most popular television programs in the United States mm -hmm. were in uh, 1967. Now I'm, I I know this this premiered in, in ran, ran in England from fall of 67 to the the winter spring of 68. Right. Might have been a little later here in the states. Not not sure, mm -hmm. but. Uh, 6768 in the U.S. The most popular show on television was the Andy Griffith Show. Followed by The Lucy Show, followed by Gomer Pyle, USMC, followed by Gunsmoke, 
Uh, mm-hmm. Family Affair, Bonanza, The Red Skelton Show, The Dean Martin Show, The Jackie Gleason Show, and something called Saturday Night at the Movies, which I would certainly watch were it, were it still on. Mm-hmm. Um, so as far as what seems like uh, something similar, nothing. Absolutely nothing. Yeah, that surprises me because, I mean, this was coming at the time, like Danger Man had, as we talked about before, Danger Man had kind of ushered in this wave of spy TV, uh, both in the UK and in the States. And uh, it surprises me that none of those spy movies, spy sh- none of those spy television shows were e- particularly popular, at least top 10 popular. But again, yeah. you know, who's going to who, who's gonna fight Red Skelton? Not me. But in the UK, at least, McGowan was a sure thing uh, because he had been such a star. And um, they were banking on him, and that's they were throwing all kinds of money at him. He was going to star in it, produce it, and co-write the series. Uh, it was then seen as a no-brainer chiefly because a lot of the high muckety bucks just considered it a sequel uh, to Danger Man. And uh, it would not be that, as we will come to see. But in their minds, that's all it was. And so they were shooting on location. That's one thing that drove up the budget. And also they were devising an entire world of mini mokes and weird phones and wardrobe and props and sets and all that kind of stuff. Cordless, cordless phones. Uh, On the commentary track of this this, uh, initial episode, Arrival, production manager Bernie Williams is uh, heard to remark, what a a fantastical notion the cordless phone that uh, number six speaks into was uh, seen to be at the time. What a cool thing. And what a cool shape, too. I mean, yeah, okay, Star Trek had their communicators, and that's basically what we have now. But true, it's a true. very, very cool design. And one of the reasons that McGowan had the power that he did was that uh, all the production of The Prisoner was done by his company, uh, Everyman Films. Now, Everyman, of course, is a medieval morality play. Uh, and uh, the very Catholic, the very strict Catholic McGowan, of course, would name it Everyman. He had total control because all ITC the network was doing was uh, ponying up the mm-hmm. dough and everyone involved on the show worked for McGowan, worked for Everyman. Mm-hmm. So uh, David Tumblin and George Markstein banged away on the script for Arrival and now we get to the famous Rover discussion where it was originally intended to be, uh, Rover of course the watchdog of the village, uh, it was intended to be a hovercraft that had a dome topped by a uh, blue spotlight Basically, it was, it's been described as kind of a hovering igloo that uh, chased people around, and originally it was supposed to be able to go climb up walls. Uh, and it, evidently it looked fantastic on land, but as soon as it uh, hit the water, it sank. <laughs> now, there's a story that that happened like in the middle of production, um, that it happened like on one of the first days of filming, but uh, since uh, scholars since then have, have come up with yes. the idea that, it, of course, it didn't, because they would not have shipped that out to Port Marion, where it was filmed, um, without doing any testing. So all of this happened in the testing phase, in the pre-production phase, and this whole thing about how um, I sent somebody off to get a weather balloon at the last minute, that's probably bullshit. And um, it was, uh, because there are no photos at all of the original rover on location in Port Marion. Not true, Glenn. Oh, really? I'm I'm going to uh, contradict you there, my friend. Yes, uh, I I don't know what... you know, for our, our listeners who are watching the series or revisiting it on uh, via Amazon Prime, I don't know if they have access to these things, but on the Blu-ray set, ah, uh, okay, uh, there there is some some rare footage of the initial failed rover design. It just looks like a like a little wedding cake on top of a go kart. Uh-huh. It does not seem scary. It doesn't seem like any application of sound effects could make it frightening or intimidating. I I, I think the the weather balloon 
is so much better because it defies any any resemblance to any anything mechanical that we're familiar with. Uh, you know, it seems like is it organic? I mean, it kind of roars. It kind of sounds like a creature. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is it doing to you physically? Is it is it wrapping you in some kind of cellophane and dragging you away? And you know, it's more more nightmarish. Yeah, that's true. Um, and uh, I, I I think that um, that that's one of the elements that that drags the show a little further and you know down the spectrum into to science fiction that there's this uh, fantastical and and threatening device. Mm-hmm. Now those photos that you've seen are they on on location? Or are they in Port Marion? Or are they on the Lotus Test uh, Track? Or what? I, I can't. Uh, you know, I, I now now I'm I'm not sure whether it actually got the location, but I mean it was it was clear it it, it didn't work. And yeah. I, I think uh, production manager Bernie Williams talks about trying to drive it, and uh, apparently the fact that whomever had to had to drive this thing also couldn't see made it made it harder to <laughs> to to get the thing to move with any kind of intention which again when this is a machine that we're supposed to be afraid of it it needs to it needs to have intention mm-hmm. or at least not to be crashing into to whatever's out there now i have seen the show many times and every time i'm kind of amazed at how they got rover to behave because it is essentially a ball of air uh, on an outside on a very windswept section of the of the Welsh coast and um, if you watch you can see that they're knitting a lot of different shots together whenever he's moving across a, a place and oh so you're you're gendering rover um, I am gendering you're, you're, rover, I suppose, you're, okay. I suppose, okay so right. how about they <laughs> let's call it they there's a later episode where, where rover sort of sprouts some secondary and tertiary spheres mm-hmm. to to drag a body back towards land and and it I, I can see why you would you would decide rover is male based mm. on the uh, oh, I see configuration that rover adopts. Uh, I see what you're saying. Maybe it's uh, maybe yeah. it re- reproduces by budding. Maybe it's asexual. <laughs> um, so basically it's a weather balloon connected to wires that are pulling it along the streets but then the shots are reversed so it seems to be moving forward. That's why you don't see any kind of distent like distension in the actual surface of the weather balloon, um, hmm. which is very, very smart. Uh, so filming began on the 5th of September, 1966. Uh, it always would cost a lot of money to schlep actors out from London, so they tended not to do that. Um, most of the number twos, for example, never made it to the village, never made it to Port Marion. And when they step out of helicopters, for example, on location, as one does in uh, this uh, episode, um, we're just seeing the back of their head because they're using doubles. Uh, all the villagers were locals, paid uh, two pounds and ten shillings a day, uh, which is about five bucks. Is that even money? Yeah, I know, right? And apparently the cast and crew uh, really treated the place poorly. Uh, there were cigarette butts lying in the streets. <laughs> uh, and this really angered the architect, Mr. Clough Williams Ellis. Uh, not a lot of moms and dads naming their kids Clough anymore, but uh, yeah, there you are. Right. Uh, he's, he's yeah, right. He's probably Italian. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it pretty so. sounds... Clough Williams Ellis. He said. Or at <laughs> least he, he designed in an Italianate style. Yeah, it's a mixture of styles actually, and and uh, it, but it was used many times uh, for like Italian villages uh, on shows like Danger Man. Um, mm. And of course, this guy had no idea what he was in for because not only was the cast and crew running roughshod over the place, the word that Patrick McGowan was filming a television show got out, and there were tourists who uh, came to see the filming, and they filmed most of, uh, pretty much all of it, in one long stretch, all September long, the the exteriors for every episode. Uh, So they worked over the weekends. There was only one two-day break in the month of September. And every (laughs) night they'd go to the local uh, theater to watch the dailies. Uh, And this 
caused some of the people who were not directly involved with a lot of discussions with Patrick McGowan to grow worried because they couldn't figure out what the hell was going on. Uh, but McGowan kept assuring everybody that he had all the answers in his head and the final script was in his head and all their questions, mm. all their concerns would be put to rest. And then he became, as the filming went on, and we'll talk about this later in subsequent episodes, he became kind of a micromanaging despot because as far as he was concerned, yeah. and very rightly so, I think, it was all riding on him. Uh, it was his reputation, his face, <laughs> everything, and he was the boss. So he fired and hired people uh, at the last minute. Uh, he fired and hired uh, an editor or two. He rewrote scripts at the last minute. He re-edited scenes at the last minute. And so George Markstein left the show uh, midway through, uh, and it was not an amicable split at all. Uh, McGowan and Markstein have spent years, uh, has spent, McGowan and Markstein spent the years since the end of the show kind of beefing, going after each other yeah, in every interview. Right, right, squabbling over whose whose idea it was. Claiming and, credit uh, for it. Claiming each of them uh, claiming George, George Markstein is seen in the opening titles of each episode. George Markstein is. is actually the guy behind the desk to whom uh, number, or future number six, not John Drake, whatever, whatever we're calling him, hands his resignation uh, personal and confidential by hand. Mm -hmm. Personal and The phrase by hand is written on the envelope that he then hands to the guy. That is how uh, agitated <laughs> he, he was. Yep. And he breaks the T-set. Drives his car like right right into the, yeah, oh. breaks the T-set, like, like drives right right into the, the parking garage with no other cars in it, marches down that, that very long hallway, opens both the dual doors, stands dramatically, I have never had the pleasure of announcing my my resignation from a job in such spectacularly cinematic fashion. Yeah, but, great. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm holding out hope. So he's bringing in the Johnny Paycheck energy, taking this job and shoving it. That's what he's doing. That's the vibe he's giving off. Yep, yep. Straight to straight to George Markstein, whom uh, I'm, I'm sure everyone. Um, well, this is this is taking quite a leap here. I'm sure everyone <laughs> who watches the special features on the more than decade old Prisoner Blu-ray box set and sees the archival footage of of uh, Mark Steen, who who died in 1987. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, it's been quite some time. They'll all note his striking resemblance to longtime U2 manager Paul McGinnis. Okay, dead ringer. All, dead all ringer. right, good to know. Good to know. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So the first episode was shown on British TV on September 30th, 1967. And uh, reaction was decidedly mixed because most people were just expecting more of John Drake. And this is where we should segue into talking about the episode itself because it is, it strikes me, as a plot-light, world-building heavy episode where not wow. much happens except we kind of get a tour of the, the tone and the locale and the central conflict. But in terms of moving along with the plot, not so much. Okay, this is this is great because I, I'm like I'm so glad we're split on this. This is this is certainly the episode of the series that I have seen more than the others. Mm -hmm. Me too. And maybe I'm forgetting that subsequent episodes are are more event packed than this one. But my sense of this was that that it was quite busy, that the story moved along at a rapid clip. And in fact, this is kind of an anomalous episode, or at least one that as we, we get further into the series will be revealed as an anomalous episode because it has two stories in it almost, two unsuccessful escape attempts. Mm -hmm. Two uh, femmes fatale, who each, uh, you know, knowingly or unknowingly a attempt to ingratiate themselves by crying number six's confidence. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, because women, <laughs> uh huh, women and, be soft. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Tr try that with Pat McGowan. <laughs> See what happens. <laughs> um, 
So I, I like this. I like that that we have such radically different uh, different takes here. Yeah. Hey, continue. No, no, no. I mean, I, I just I just think it is a setup episode. It is setting up the entire world, and it's 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 introducing us to the uh, to him and his desperate desire to get out. Uh, and there's something fascinating about just the way this guy acts. I mean, when he's walking down the corridor. Uh, at the beginning, you know, when, uh, and we should say that, you know, when he, when he comes to the parking gate of whatever Secret Service place he comes to, his car could pass easily, his Lotus 7 could pass easily mm -hmm. under that gate, but he pauses to get the parking ticket because he's still a citizen. He's still a law-abiding guy. He's still yeah. uh, part of the machine. Um, and he gets the rock star parking right in front of the doors. Um, yeah. And he's well, and, and I mean, it is a rock star car. It is a rock star you know, car. I, I just like it. I, I always thought that seemed like a very flashy car for for this guy. It that's a that's a good point. He's very proud of it because he knows every nut on Bolton cog. He built it with his own hands. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Uh, he, so he walks down, and we get a, a, a tight shot of his face, several tight shots of his face, and his flesh-colored eyebrows. So he really <laughs> looks like he doesn't have them, especially when the when the lighting goes overhead. And something about his acting persona, he is uh, pacing like a panther much of the show, and when he's not, he is perfectly still. Uh, he is not what you call a fidgety actor, and that just gives this character such a sense of purpose and a sense of uh, intention. Um, and all that happens, you know, the way he expresses emotion is by modulating that magnificent voice of his. Yes. Uh, and, and emphasizing that, that, that final word of each line. It's, it's very run DMC in a way. <laughs> I, I think he, he anticipates <laughs> hip hop by, uh, by 15 years. Well, I mean, uh, the first time it happens, I think, in this uh, show is when he says, I did not walk away, I resigned. Uh, and it, and that will be that little whip crack at the end of sentences will be how he emotes. Uh, so yeah, let's let's take off uh, take off what will become the opening credits. The first few minutes of the show will be condensed. The the, the like three minute mm -hmm. uh, mini epic chronicling his um, you know it chronicles his his commute uh, <laughs> yep. into uh, somewhere in Westminster, down the hall, through the doors. To the unnamed supervisor, who in real life is the the story editor, mm -hmm. with whom he would break. Who is cleaning um, his pipe and not making eye contact, if I recall. Yeah, in a very dank, windowless office somewhere in the <laughs> sub basement. <laughs> yes, he returns home uh, to to his flat. We've talked about uh, you know we always wanted to do this because we said there was so much to to unpack from this series, and I think that's because we see him packing <laughs> in, in in every. <laughs> Every episode, yes, uh, putting a, a photograph, presumably of his destination, on top of his clothes before closing the suitcase so that he would recognize it when he, when he gets there, I guess. Unless that's a, a bit of subterfuge, unless that's, that's his uh, you know, vestigial secret agent habit, uh, trying to uh, masquerade as a, as a typical clueless tourist carrying <laughs> photos. Carrying his destination. photos of a beach. Like, I always thought, I, in my head, whenever I thought about that, I just saw them as travel brochures. But you're absolutely right. It is a giant calendar photo uh, yep. that he just slaps. It's like, uh, you know, <laughs> eight and a half by 11. He slaps it on the top this of This is photos. the palm tree that mm -hmm. uh, I am going to live under for my, my days remaining. Um, and, and my favorite part of the, the, the title sequence, when the, the gas comes through the door, mm -hmm. uh, he reacts facially. The effect of whatever noxious inhalant this is is immediate. Yeah, super immediate. 
and uh, <laughs> yeah. it's a big apartment. I mean, like, relatively speaking, <laughs> and that's going to take some time, but it doesn't take any damn time because he has been followed on his uh, trip back from uh, work uh, by a hearse, um, an old, yeah. old-timey undertakey, uh, British undertakey, with, complete with top hats, uh, hearse, which is... Very smart, because when they carry his lifeless body out, you know, they're not going to raise a fuss. People are going to think, oh, there's, there goes the hearse people doing what hearses do. Just another dead guy. Uh-huh. And then, Chris? Uh, then he, he wakes up in a place that he does not seem to, uh, just from the environment of the room, recognize immediately as foreign, as not his room. And it's not until he looks out the window uh-huh. that he finds himself in what we shall soon learn is the village. Right. And that first shot of him looking out is not accompanied by a dramatic sting as it will be in the introduction to every other episode, mm-hmm. but a very gentle sort of I don't know if it's a bazooki. I'm not even sure what it is, but it's uh, <laughs> it's a very tender like uh, uh, stringed instrument that just seems kind of forlorn and sad. Uh, Ron, Ron Grainer uh, is responsible for most of the, the music in this episode, uh, including presumably about nine minutes and 45 seconds into this existential spy thriller when we're treated to a, a jazzy arrangement of Pop Goes the Weasel mm-hmm. for... Uh, Theories, Glenn. Is there uh, is there anything to be derived from from that? There's a whole needle drop. There's a whole uh, conversation online about pop, um, pop, which used to, in mm. one in the original ending or an original ending um, would would be like a shot of planet Earth that would then say pop. Um, so maybe, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Right. Um, so he wakes up, he looks out, and then he does that thing that he do. Uh, he looks um, <laughs> worried. But angry, but yep. at the same time, still <laughs> expressions. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get a terrifying doll that says, "Welcome to your home from home." Um, Goes outside, sees, looks up, and sees uh, some uh, tow-headed young man looking down on him from a from a clock tower. Mm-hmm. And and even though their their physical positions are, are reversed, this is that every time I see this episode, I, I I see the guy looking down on him. I want to go, boy, what day is it? <laughs> <laughs> Have they sold the prize turkey? <laughs> um, he he uh, runs up the stairs of the clock tower and finds that uh, the the live carbon-based human he saw looking down on him has become a statue. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So already we're we're you know I you you push back on me when I said I always found the show eerie, particularly when I when I saw it uh, in my pre-adolescence, but. Uh, I'm sticking by that man. Everything about this show, from the hearse to the the, the creepy doll in his flat to the um, the statues that that move with the glowing eyes, which are always welcome in anything. Sure, um, but the doll's the creepiest all, thing on the show. All spooky. The, yeah. the doll's by far the creepiest thing on the show. <laughs> and even uh, though we will get a couple shots inside the hospital of uh, strange psychological experiments, which are legit unsettling um, mm. because they seem kind of out of time in a way that a lot of this show does. Um, still, i, I got to go with the doll. The doll is, it's, got, it's got a <laughs> wooden face of terror. He wanders around. He is uh, trying to figure out where he is. Uh, first goes to the, the cafe and is told they, they have no police station. Um, I think this is where he tries to go by the map. Uh, endearing his himself to you forever. That that might be a, a little a little later, and is is presented with um, only local maps using the most generic terms to labeling you know the beach, the sea, mm-hmm. the um, 
the notable uh, mission that the guy tries to upsell him a color map, which uh, many people watching this series as originally broadcast would, would have been seeing it in black and white, even though it was, was filmed in color. We've seen it in color. And uh, gets, gets around to the public information phone box, which uh, has the delightful legend on it, push and find out. <laughs> yep. next, to, next to the button. Yep. Uh, this, is, this is where we see that, that futuristic cordless phone. I'm told that if you go back to Port Marion now, and of course still operates as a, as a tourist resort, that sign has been updated to say, fuck around and find out. <laughs> well, uh, run and find out is, of course, the uh, motto of the, of the rabbits and watership down. So. And, uh, ah, and this is also likely, the right. first time, I mean, we've seen it in the credits, but this is the first time we actually see a font that we will come to know very well. Uh, Albertus is the name Albertus, of this, the name of this yes, font. Although it is yes. kind of I'm, 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 glad. <laughs> I'm glad we have both <laughs> yeah. sought out. But it's actually kind of tweaked. Uh, every letter, lowercase letter E, has kind of like a bite taken out of it. So it looks like an uppercase letter E slightly. And uh, there's other little tiny tweaks that go along with it. But yeah, it, it strikes me as a really uh, friendly font and an unassuming font, which of course mm. is what makes it so sinister. In this setting, yeah, and and it really is perfectly matched to the the village with uh, with the sort of jarring exception of um, we see two like random bikini babes playing with a beach ball in a little little splash pool. Mm-hmm. That's that seems like a I don't know just a <laughs> continuity error or something because they're they're you know clearly whenever we see a a young attractive woman in in this series generally they have been put there by by design right. in a, a fruitless attempt to to uh, if not seduce at at, at least uh, secure the sympathy of number six most of the people we see are old the um, implication being that once you get to the village you don't you don't leave true true and the setup here which is kind of lightly touched upon is that. You don't know who are the who are the prisoners, who are your fellow prisoners, and who are secretly working for the uh, power behind the village. That will be a thing that will get really trotted out in a big way in the next episode we're going to talk about, Free For All, but is an undercurrent here because he doesn't know who to trust, and he instinctively doesn't trust uh, anybody. Right, so he, uh, let's see, after, after these, these uh, completely unsuccessful initial attempts to, to find out where he is, what the hell's going on. Uh, he returns to his flat and finds himself summoned by phone to breakfast with number two at uh, number two's residence, the the Green Dome, uh, later to be immortalized in an influential porn film uh, in in the early 70s. Okay. okay. I'm sorry, that was the Green Door. Yes, that it was. was. The green door. It certainly that's, was. Uh, that's my, yeah, Glenn regrets the air. <laughs> The Green Dome, by the way, was actually originally a firehouse, part of a firehouse in Port Marion. Hmm. Well, this is where we're introduced to to our, our first number two. Um, this is uh, Guy Dolman, uh-huh. uh, a Kiwi actor who was very busy in the in the spy genre at this time. Uh, concurrent with uh, his his, I think, one and only appearance in The Prisoner. Here, he is in two of the Harry Palmer. Um, spy movies starring Michael Caine, uh-huh. uh, The Ipcris File, and A Funeral in Berlin. Uh, also, he is in Thunderball, 007 number 004 as, uh, as Count Lippy. So uh, <laughs> Count Lippy. the dude, uh, dude kind of specializes, which um, is not what you, you might infer from, from this performance, where he has a very kind of patrician remove. I, I, I'd say even compared to the other number twos who we will come to know, he seems a little supercilious. Uh, we see him punching buttons with his umbrella because he's he's not going to do the 
uh, manual labor of actually touching a button <laughs> without some kind of prophylactic between him and the, uh, you know, the surface. So I, I think between that and uh, the muffler. Yep. And the other dead uh, giveaway uh, really is later on, a little bit later on in the show, uh, he mentions that there is a social club and it's members only, but I'll see what I can do to yeah. get you in, which is <laughs> right. the distillation of exactly what you're talking about, Chris, that patrician remove that um, sort of convivial but um, strict uh, affect. And the, the second number two we're going to meet is much less ingratiating and more th overtly threatening. No. Um, right. This one is is played by by George Baker. Mm -hmm. He seems seems a little more a little more brutish, a little more more working class. Although it's all relative, yeah. because I mean, every everyone on this show is 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 pretty. Um, they're all verbal. They're all schooled. They're they're you know it, it's it's kind of a patrician vibe mm -hmm. overall in the village. I think absolutely. And so the thing that we're supposed to be unsettled by, one thing we're supposed to be unsettled by, is that uh, they know his breakfast order. <laughs> and I don't know. I mean, maybe that tells us something about who number six is, because he has the same breakfast every day. Uh, I don't have the same breakfast every day. I couldn't. Uh, but he. Oh, oh, I, I do. Yeah, of course you do. <laughs> it's a protein bar, isn't it? <laughs> it, it? It's certainly not eggs and bacon, because gross. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, the bacon looked terrible. The eggs, the eggs looked like eggs. Uh, I gotta say, this is this show is the reason. This scene is the reason that when I drink tea, I drink it with lemon, just as. Um, <laughs> Twin Peaks made me start drinking coffee. This show mm -hmm. has inspired sure. in me that I will never drink a, a milky tea or a sugary tea. I will only drink it with lemon. Glenn, I know I know exactly what you mean. Uh, I had never had a cappuccino before in 1991 when the film Hudson Hawk was released. Okay. But um, <laughs> I, I became a cappuccino aficionado <laughs> thereafter. So so I get it. Uh, cappuccino, yes. That's, that's right. Mm -hmm. That's a that's a Port Marion portmanteau. Ah, uh, look at that! For, look at what we're doing. Oh, y'all. Uh, then there's this thing with this magic book that every time you flip a page, causes the image on the screen to skip as hell. It's like this is a kind of demented PowerPoint before there was demented PowerPoints. Yes. Now I I, I want to to zero in on uh, on this. This is the the point where number two is is revealing to uh, number six that they they have records going back to his birth. This is where. His uh, his character, his unnamed character's birth is uh, we find out has the same birthday in real life as uh, Patrick McGowan, mm -hmm. March nineteenth, nineteen twenty eight. And there's a there's a mention uh, when when they're showing him more recent uh, like surveillance photographs of the adult, not John Drake, whomever whomever number six is uh, purported to be. Uh, he said, "Oh, and we we got you coming back from from Singapore, coming down with a bit of cold." Now I did look this up. Uh, John Drake does go to Singapore on a mission in the Danger Man episode, a very dangerous game. Mm. Mm. Title seems a bit bit hat on a hat there, yeah. but uh, yeah, uh, which was directed by by Don Don Chafee, who directed uh, Arrival mm -hmm. as well as uh, three other episodes of, of The Prisoner. And this scene is where it happens, where where all the magic happens. This is where pushed, filed, indexed, stamped, briefed, debriefed, or numbered yes. uh, comes yes. to us and. Uh, did 16-year-old me memorize that? Yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. <laughs> the minute it happened, I knew that was uh, an iconic moment. Well, this is also our, our first look at that that astonishing set, which yeah. will be endlessly, endlessly redressed. It's number two's, uh, what do you want to call it, office, observatory, control room, mm -hmm. et cetera, but it's also... 
like it becomes the infirmary. It it, it becomes the but there's an episode where there's a, a village art exhibit, mm-hmm. and it's the it's the gallery. It's the they got a lot of use out of this this truly striking and and memorable set that I, I I will say so eager am I to suspend my disbelief that I I seldom recognize things like that a redressed set it, it is a monumental piece of of design it's one of the things along with Rover that I think of when I think about the series uh, not only because it has some kind of weird periscope seesaw mm-hmm. in in some of its iterations where two guys are sitting on either end of a like oscillating platform staring into viewfinders at at what yeah we yeah. We, we know now right? yeah um and it is linked to rover in a very simple way because the chair that number two always sits in is uh, perfectly spherical just like rover and in my head it was white all these years and I, mm. when i just watched it again today it's like oh it's a black chair and always was a black chair and uh. it is also very importantly because as Number two is talking to number six. Number six is pacing and walking around the circular set. It is a self-scooching chair. You don't see number two's little legs kind of <laughs> following him around. It is. Well, I, I mean, I, I think that would be a lot of physical exertion for this. At least the Guy Dolman incarnation of number two. Yeah. There, there'd be a increased risk of perspiration. Yep. There. So, uh, no. So this is where the uh, gentlemanly, patriarchal sort of one-upsmanship happens, starts to devolve into something a little bit more raw, a little bit more real that results in a uh, helicopter tour of the village. Where uh, number two is, 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 this is his attempt to, to convince number six that there, there is no escape, which is a little, uh, I don't know that that uh, sense of, of um, confinement is, is necessarily conveyed by, by this pleasant little helicopter tour. Again, not, not to rely too, too heavily on one source, but uh, Bernie Williams does have a funny story about the day they, they shot all this stuff. Port Marion was still full of uh, rent-paying tourists uh, when they were, were shooting all this, and apparently they had not swept out their chimneys in, in many years. So the downdraft from the helicopter blades just caused a lot of uh, tourists to be covered in ash and soot. Wow. And, uh, he had, and as soon as that happened, he thought that their location permit was going to be revoked. This is where number two assures number six that we have everything here, water, electricity, <laughs> which that's, that's, there's your Maslow's hierarchy of needs right sure. there. Uh, water mi- number one. Mini-mogs. <laughs> that's right. Uh, Mini-mogs. Cordless phones. Umbrellas. Uh, uh, doors that, that uh, open and shut electrically mm-hmm. behind you, mm-hmm. uh, thereby preventing transmission of, of disease. Why do we still not have those? That actually seems useful. Um, I don't know. I think I think you get uh, your little tootsies jammed in uh, jammed in a doorway, and uh, we do have them on cars, on on trunks of cars nowadays. Indeed. Um, Indeed. They visit the labor exchange, and I think if I'm a betting man, I think this is the moment when people at home, watching the show for the first time in 1968 or whatever, are thinking to themselves, you know what, this is a this is about John Drake being kidnapped and taken to this place. This, though, this whole thing with the aptitude tests and the questionnaire, this is the moment when McGowan's take that bureaucracy. Maybe there's more than what it looks like is going on here. Maybe it's the aptitude test, the questionnaire, all that stuff. Maybe there's something else going on. And uh, I'm not just saying that because of the Tinker Toys, although the Tinker Toys are a big part of it. You just fill in your race, religion, hobbies, what you like to read, what you like to eat, what you were what you want to be, any family illnesses, any politics. 
so here we're getting a sense of McGowan slash number six's uh, revulsion of the kind of invasion of privacy that common questions like he would hate uh-huh. he would hate it today he would hate everything about all this privacy that we eagerly surrender uh, yeah. to technology uh, he would he would be uh, I don't, he might make a new show about it do, do, do you think he had the whole cast and crew take the Myers-Briggs uh, <laughs> personality inventory or not uh, not only think it was a thing then was it it was not <laughs> even a thing uh, I don't know but he uh, tries to escape we get those uh, statues of Hadrian or whoever the hell with their glowing eyes and there's a Buddha oh, in there it, just it, because it. it's very cosmopolitan. Yeah. Now, now I think, I might be getting this wrong, but I, I, I thought Bernie Williams said that those, those statues are not in fact in Port Marion. Those are, those are in the, the back lot somewhere at MGM Burnham Wood. So uh, it would be a fun game to go back and, and see what other movies you can find those statues <laughs> in. <laughs> um, you found that unsettling, huh? Just, boy, that always looked a little... Uh, cheese ball to me huh? that yes that that seemed more corny to me than than frightening it was it was very scooby-doo with like the the painting with the eyes mm-hmm. that, that follow you as you walk across the room mm-hmm. um one thing that happened on uh, the prisoner's original tour is we meet rover for the first time um when number two commands everybody walking around the fountain to stop and one dude doesn't um and he <laughs> uh gets <laughs> rovered in a big old way. Although, if you notice, yeah. when we get we see that shot of the smothering, it's Patrick McGowan's face, which is yeah, I thought so. Yeah, it's definitely, yeah, it's definitely that, Patrick McGowan's face. If you're watching this as initially broadcast, and and even as initially you know rebroadcast many times, the decades before DVD and Blu-ray and freeze frame capabilities came along, you might not yeah be able to to confirm that. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think it was a matter of them not thinking to get the extra to stick his face in a balloon on the day and yeah. so they just had to be used that because they use that shot right and and we're just going to call whenever you know the occasion uh demands that we refer to, to that rover victim again we're going to call him waldo yeah because he is wearing the Good horizontal point. stripes he's got the little red cap on he's got the sunglasses uh, he, he may have inspired that that uh, best-selling series of children's <laughs> books uh so the number six tries to escape he runs through the woods rover comes uh, he runs along the beach. <laughs> he gets a, a chase scene that uh, I don't—I wouldn't call it pulse pounding, but it's a chase scene <laughs> with two goons in a mini moke uh, chasing yep. after him, and he's a chase scene with a very recognizable stunt double. Definitely. Uh, but we do get a chance to see the control room for the first time. That, that room with mm. the seesaw, and we hear the immortal words. First, we hear the words "yellow alert." But it's not until a little bit later, which we now know, orange alert means release the rover. And uh, it is intoned for the first time, and it is it will be reused and reused and reused over the course mm. of this as, yeah, as uh, number six gets rovered. Now, if you recall the scene at the fountain with Waldo, it seems to me, looking back on it, that I, I had always taken that scene as number two, noticing that something was, was going wrong, and uh, that's what and so Rover showed up independent of what number two is doing. It now seems to me that number two is demonstrating exactly what happens. He's forced, he's telling everybody to stand still. One guy doesn't because he just seems uh, tweaked for some reason. So yeah. It just seems a little. Yeah. Uh, and that is a, a show of force. Does that does it strike you as that? Or is it? Absolutely. Okay. All right. Yeah. I, I didn't have that interpretation until just today. Uh, he wakes up in a hospital in the village and a. 
intentionally creepy woman is knitting and looking over him and gives her line readings so much sinister force that it becomes comical. Yeah. I don't know if you read about the the flap over, uh, I can't remember which publication it was that, that uh, published the review of Promising Young Woman, but their critic commented on Carrie Mulligan's appearance in this film and, and uh, that apparently Mulligan herself wrote, a, wrote an angry letter. And um, Alyssa Rosenberg, I, I don't know if you know uh, Alyssa, but she wrote a column about this in the, in the Washington Post last week saying, no, critics do need to be able to discuss actors' appearances in a, in a review. That's, that's fair game. It's not sexist. It's not, uh, I mean, she, you know, Without get, going into well, the uh, specifics of this, uh, of course <laughs> okay. it can. Of course it can. But but uh, you know, I mean, her point was that like like she thought some of the the protests were were too broad. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was saying there are there are plenty of of instances where it is perfectly appropriate for for a critic to write about an, an actor's mm-hmm. appearance. Um, so when I tell you that the the woman who is in the rocking chair next to. <laughs> As as every hospital room has mm. a rocking chair that continues to rock after she stands up from it, uh, I I kind of thought this actor was gonna like pull off a Mission Impossible mask or something, right. and and clearly you saw it too. Right, I, I was getting it more from her affect because that tone, just the way she says, "I have to let the doctors know that you've woken up," is just like uh, the thing that the head on the woman in Total Recall page what says, you know. Stay tuned for a surprise. Two weeks. Two weeks, exactly. Yes. Um, yeah. So uh, he meets his old friend Cobb, a uh, very British name, in the hospital. Um, and Also the name of Leonardo DiCaprio's character in, in Inception. Sure, so, sure. Uh, I, I, think we'll, I think we'll find lots of things that uh, Nolan, uh, Christopher Nolan later, later pulled out of this series for re- reuse in his own oeuvre. Okay, all right. Um, and here we get our introduction to, to a recurring theme, which is McGowan slash number six's uh, pitched distrust of psychology in all its forms. And particularly uh, a perfectly righteous uh, and very correct disgust for um, lobotomies, the, lo- the practice of lobotomy, which was still pretty popular back then uh, at that time. And yeah, he's not picking up what psychology is putting down. So the, the patient who, who we see, who the doctor has heard to comment, is, is progressing nicely, intoning some kind of gibberish that, that was voiced by, by Patrick McGowan. Mm-hmm. It's not... Um, right. The actor whose face we see is, in fact, a very young Michael Chiklis. Oh, um, come on. Who would... Come on. I had for seconds. <laughs> for three seconds you had me. He's coming along nicely. Not coincidentally, it is, uh, he is staring at a water fountain, a tiny water fountain with a tiny rover atop it. And this is causing that reaction. It is exactly the same way that we first met rover. So this is, uh, there's a connection here. But again, people watching at home are now thinking to themselves, wow, so this doesn't really connect in any logical way. <laughs> this, this show is working no. at kind of cross purposes to itself in some ways. Um, we meet a doctor who is just such a great um, British doctor, like he's the he's he's he is not doing anything stylized. He could be in an episode of All Creatures Great and Small. He is just um, there is no there's nothing sinister about him, which of course is what makes him in situationally sinister. Uh, they do a uh, medical exam of number six, which is basically just shining a light on him, and we get a punch card because 1967. Yeah, uh, and there's a moment when. He the doctor says we're going to get you some new clothes, and uh, I, I have rewound the shot several times. This is the shot where number six says, "What about my old ones?" And he cocks an eyebrow, 
uh, an almost non-existent eyebrow, but it's cocked. And it is uh, a challenging look, um, but it is a, it's a look of someone trying to figure out somebody else's game. And the thing about this doctor, he's got no game. He's just doing his job. He's not, he doesn't seem to be this uh, sinister force. Uh, And that, and, and number six can't even muster up enough anger at this poor, poor old dude because he's just, you know, well, this this guy who uh, you know, and, and and I mean exactly, exactly. He can tell himself that he is abiding by his Hippocratic oath. I mean, he is looking out for the physical welfare of of his patient, but it doesn't even occur to him that he is crushing a little act of dissent here by by refusing to even answer the question of what became of of this man's clothes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I need to tell you also, uh, so since one of one of the other commentary voices on, on this episode is Tony Sloman, who is the film librarian for this series. Mm-hmm. So his whole concern uh, over the first half of this episode is when are we going to get him into the into the blazer? into Because we can reuse those shots. Ah, <laughs> he kept saying, like M- Magoon would always tell him, like, oh, well, we don't need me running up the clock tower. We've got that. And he would always say, Pat, we don't because you're wearing you're wearing a black shirt and a black blazer mm-hmm. in that scene. And uh yeah. So, so for him, like as with any superhero film, he's just like, when, when is this guy going to get into proper costume so that we can, you know, mix, uh, interchange shots from episode to episode? Right. And he is given an umbrella. He's given a boater, and he's given, of course, the uh, khakis, Mister Rogers shoes, and white piping jacket that will become the, his uniform. He's also given his badge, which he rejects. Um, this is a side note here, Chris, but I've always wondered about the numbering system in the village. It mm-hmm. seems to me that it is meant to connote importance. Uh, so a low number like six, it's not random that he has a number. So like the people who are now at number 98 and 53, they're down a little bit lower. But it seems yeah. to me odd that if, if, if I'm right and the numbering does connote some kind of uh, importance rating, then they're being, they're kind of shining them on by, by giving them a high yeah. number like that. They're kind of sure. buttering them up maybe. Yes, it's an attempt at uh, flattery or something. Because he is, we, we never meet numbers three, four, or five, or do we meet a five? I think we might meet a five at some point. Uh, I don't, I don't remember that. I mean, we we are about to meet number nine right. in this episode, but I don't, I don't want to drag you ahead before you're okay. No, you're finished. With it. That's it. I just always wondered about it. I wanted it to have a logical reason, and I'm not sure it does. Mm-hmm. It might, it might be perfectly random. But speaking of numbers, um, after we find out, we are told. Interestingly, and importantly, we are told that his friend Cobb has jumped out a window. When we see that exterior shot of the infirmary, mm-hmm. uh, my, my thought was, uh, hmm, to actually have that, that leap be fatal, you'd, you'd just have to land on your head. It's head, head first. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> I mean, exactly you, what I Yeah, I mean, it's a three-story. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's possible, yep. but everything would have to go right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we meet our second number two, our less friendly number two, our uh, kind of a bigger dick number two, mm. who is all about uh, getting rid of the carrot and just, just the stick. He's, that's yep. what this dude is. Uh, and this is where we... No, he, he presses buttons with his own fingers. <laughs> That's when. right. He's a, he's a man of action, uh, or at least what passes for action in this show. Uh, I, this is where we get, I didn't walk out, I resigned. Um, and <laughs> uh, we will come back to that speech pattern uh, a great deal. Friend of yours? You knew him? No. You're crying. Funerals make me emotional. Even those are people you don't know. 
Yes. Well, this is when we're we're introduced to to number nine. Uh, this is uh, Virginia Maskell. Mm-hmm. We we skipped ahead a little bit here. Yeah. I mean, there, there there is a a bit where we see number six's first interaction with a, a woman. It's a, a maid who is sent to to his apartment, but he certainly reacts as though it's an unwanted sexual advance with that same kind of scolding. He uh, doesn't just say no. It's not no thank you. He says get out, mm-hmm. and then she instantly confesses that she's been promised her freedom if she would would report on his activity. Uh, and he kind of mocks her for believing them. So so there's there's even, there's like a layer of cruelty to, to go along with his his rejection. Um, she says she was raised in the village, which um, may be a lie, mm-hmm. but certainly would would give us some some more critical context about the the nature of of this place. If there are subsequent generations of of people being born and and growing to adulthood here, and then our our second uh, attempt to to insinuate themselves into sympathy by by a woman in this character is uh, number nine, uh, played by Virginia Maskell. First of all, I want to ask you, Glenn, what happens when you take a nine and you wind up and you just give it a good old, like, 180-degree sure. vertical spin? Sure, sure, what, sure. Uh, yeah. yeah, that, that, yeah. That's, uh, it's, so what are you, what's the connection you're making I think, here? I think we, well, I mean, if you need me to tell you. Or do you just want me to say, nice? Uh, I want to slow down for a second and praise Virginia Maskell because I, 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 I think we can agree. Many of the, some of the actors who appear only in a single episode of the series, they seem like they were more available uh-huh. than, uh, than, than exceptional. Yep. Uh, and she is great. She is fantastic. I think she, in, in her like two or three scenes, conveys genuine concern, genuine pathos, genuine suffering. Um, of course, I was... Truly sad to read that she actually took her own life, this actor, uh, slightly more than a year after after shooting this. Um, you know, one hates to say that, oh, I believe this actor was actually in pain because they were. Yeah, one hates really to were. say that. You know, I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's that's how it works. She is, she is terrific. She is terrific. She's playing a woman who apparently got involved with Cobb uh, during their time together in the village and had hatched an escape plot, uh, we are told, uh, that is all dependent on what, Chris? An electropass. Yes. Um, which is... <laughs> she says it twice. She does uh. say it twice. And the second time she's, she says it, she says it sort of uh, frostily because she, through clenched teeth, because she's trying to get him to get it. And, uh, yeah. and he, she just says, it's an electropass. Did you think, and I, I actually don't have an answer on this one, Did uh, was the Electropass always intended to be a, a wristwatch where the arms just spin on it, or, or was did they imagine something grander and stranger? I have no than, idea. Than I have no prop. idea. But it does, okay. it does, it makes a very loud beeping noise, which you'd think, <laughs> you'd think would be distracting. Uh-huh. Sure. Um, uh, yeah, and so uh, she passes him uh, an Electropass so that he can commandeer the helicopter that flies into yes. the village and stays a couple hours. Um, I don't know if that happens daily or weekly or what, but uh, it happens. And uh, because it is synchronized with the security system, we are told. Mm-hmm. Right. And this is it's actually when, when he is... Uh, Cautiously approaching Rover, have, having already seen Rover's dangerous capabilities, but uh, not not sure whether he should trust the Electro Pass to to keep it at bay, and that's that's when we see the the two bikini babes mm-hmm. uh, just just <laughs> uh, you know equally uh, uninterested in Rover or the helicopter or, or any of it. Really into that beach ball. Right, right. Well, that's the thing. You here you are. You're, you're creating a scene of actual tension. 
uh, involving a helicopter, a wristwatch, and a ball. Like, yep. and, and a lot of that is accomplished through uh, how it is filmed, uh, because we see uh, Rover kind of nudging up against him and nudging up against mm -hmm. the helicopter, but yeah. most of it, I think, is the sound design, because the sound of Rover is unsettling. That roar yeah, yeah. is uh, is nightmare fuel, especially when no, you compare I, it to something that is not that doesn't have a face uh, to get to be scared of that shows any emotion. It is that combination of blank affect and uh, real anger in that roar that yeah, makes it no, I, uh, I, lodge in your head. Completely agree. I, I, the one uh, you, you know we haven't remarked yet upon the fact that. Um, on this, not at Port Marion, but but uh, at uh, MGM Bornemwood, where their you know their studios were set up, um, Stanley Kubrick was making 2001 at the same time as The Prisoner <laughs> was in in production there. I thought about how Kubrick famously um, put his own breathing into the the soundtrack of the scene in 2001 when when Dave Bowman is murdering Hal mm -hmm. by pulling chips out of its brain and you know in that uh, mm -hmm. CPU uh, environment aboard the the Discovery. Um, because apparently there was a, a discussion of something similar for for Rover. Mm -hmm. um, they 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 tried a, a sound mix where it it breathed, mm -hmm. and uh, decided that was too much. That made it too too explicitly organic, mm. uh, and so took that out and and arrived at uh, I don't know the the screaming wraiths or whatever <laughs> whatever it is that we that we end up with. Well, if you squint, if you squint your ears, which you can't do, mm. but pretend you can, if you squint your ears, it, it can sound mechanical. It can sound, mm. uh, but it's right there on the line between mechanical and organic in a really, really interesting way. So, uh, he gets up on the helicopter um, and <laughs> comes right around again. Again, this is the thing that there wasn't a lot of tension in. <laughs> like, getting into the helicopter, that was actually, like, edge-of-your-seat yep. stuff. Watching him fight the stick... Um, less so yes. in terms of pulse pounding action, which which uh, the the Bond franchise will will borrow. It certainly uh, will. Thirteen years later, in in uh, for your eyes only, yep. as uh, a character who, for legal reasons they cannot identify as Blofeld, uh, offers Bond a delicatessen in stainless steel uh, <laughs> in exchange for uh, sparing his life. Mm -hmm. But you know, we'll uh, that's <laughs> we'll the... get to that on our for your eyes only episode. Oh God, that's the cold open to for yeah. your eyes only. Yes, of course, and it's really cold, <laughs> super cold. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, this is the reveal that Cobb ain't dead. Cobb was in on it the whole time. Now, what exactly was his motivation here? To, to show up at number six and then promptly die, forcing right. number six to do what? Or was this always to push him into yeah, the arms of number nine, who was supposed to do something and monitor him. And, right, know. who Cobb does have kind of a cold line to the new number two about how I would go easy on the girls. She was quite upset at my funeral. Mm -hmm. So her feelings for, for him um, were apparently genuine. Mm -hmm. You know, his for her were not. I mean, she was a means to an end for, for him. Um, but yeah, it is it is really weird. Like, what was the thought that if we, we dropped uh, some prior colleague of number sixes into this environment... And have him feign amnesia, and then I don't know. Like, what is this? Did they think number six is going to tell his buddy in the hospital why he resigned? Yeah. I mean, if they're going to do that, we need Cobb try to try to engage him mm -hmm. in a way. Like, it doesn't it doesn't really make sense that that Cobb is just claiming to have amnesia and 
is only responding to number six's questions. Num- number six <laughs> grabbing his friend by the lapels and shaking him in his hospital bed. There's a lot which, of which, uh, a lot of grabbing people. At, uh, he's he's yeah. kind of handsy, especially at the. I, I I think that's unmutual. Yeah, I think I would uh, agree. grabbing someone in a hospital bed and and manhandling. But them also when unmutual. he is asking the poor uh, waitress at the cafe, the very first thing that happens in the village is he spins her around, grabs her arm. Her Breaks that poor woman's arm. <laughs> and and looks spins like. her yeah. around. Uh, and uh, she she rolls with it. Just, you know, I, I, yeah. But, uh, yeah. but I guess she must be used to that, to people being a little perturbed. So, yeah, the number nine plot wouldn't work, I think, if he didn't know Cobb and, know, and, and spot that she knew Cobb. And then, because that lowers his defenses a little bit and gets him to trust her where otherwise he probably wouldn't. Maybe that's what that whole brief scene in the hospital is doing. Maybe that's what it's intended mm-hmm. to do, was to kind of lower his defenses in a way that those they will not, not very rarely get lowered again. He's not going to be yeah. as easily duped going in. There is apparently an alternate cut of Arrival mm-hmm. that uh, has been shown. I, I have not seen it, but but one of the, the small changes is uh, the resolution of the escape attempt via helicopter where uh, the the old admiral who we saw number six playing chess with earlier asks number nine to, to play chess mm-hmm. and says, we're all pawns, my dear. Mm-hmm. And, and we see her reaction to that, her understanding that she has once again been been played. Happens a little earlier, like, yeah. like maybe that happens a little bit before um, the helicopter is remote mm-hmm. hijacked. I, I don't see how that would change things very much, no. but uh, it's it's one of the changes I read about. One of the central questions of the show um, brings up all the time and never truly answers until the last episode in which it doesn't emphatically doesn't answer it is which side runs the village. Now, Cobb has a line here saying he mustn't keep my new masters waiting. I have a long journey and I mustn't Mm -hmm. keep my new masters waiting. How does that not explicitly tell us? that the other side runs the village. Like, I, I don't understand why it's even a question anymore because that seems to me to be clear. No? Yeah. What am I missing? Well, see, I, I think that points towards a, a greater certainty over what this was meant to be than the way it was ultimately realized. You know, when you were saying earlier how, how Magoon would, would insist to people during the production, oh, I have it all in my head, I know what's going on, I, I, I have that, that same kind of George Luke, Lucasian kind of, uh, mm. there are nine Star Wars movies in my head, and I just, I basically just have to transcribe them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, Luke and Leia were siblings, and it was always meant to be that way, and uh, I, I don't think that's true. Yeah. Um, he, he leaves, Cobb leaves by saying Alfita Zane, which I thought was a really smart thing when I first yeah. thought about it, because there was, at that time, there was East and West Germany. They were two sides, so it didn't, right. it didn't give anything and away. Num- number two says au revoir. But that's, that's, uh, that and, kind of undercut my whole thinking. It's like, oh, they're just... Cobb says Alfita Zane. Yeah, they're just yeah, being yeah, international. Yeah. But again, I, you know, I, 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 it does strike me as the other side has gotten a lot of uh, the prisoners ex-co-workers to come over to their side and uh, maybe that's too simplistic and maybe the the series wants to be more ambiguous than that but that exchange with him him saying i mustn't keep my new masters waiting is is like that's a slam dunk as far as i'm concerned yeah this i'm going to coin a new phrase that that we will run through the because we we need to get our our trademarks and our catchphrases uh uh, really ironed out Mm -hmm. in this uh this early stage of our podcast glenn uh, I'm going to call that the Markstein touch. Mm-hmm, okay. Because I, 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 I'm going to say it's always George Markstein who wants to pull this in the direction of being a uh, Byzantine and yet ultimately earthbound, understandable, clearly resolvable spy story. 
and Magoon kicking against that. You know, uh, it just occurred to me that we're we might be having a eerie parallel. With I mentioned Twin Peaks earlier, but there is Mark Frost and David Lynch. Exactly. Uh, yes. There's yes. one who is all the way Lin- imagistic. Lynch never wanted to reveal Laura Palmer's killer, mm-hmm. and I, I don't know if it was Frost or ABC who said no. You eventually have no, to give us a uh, yeah. dude. Come on. Uh, yeah. Uh, so that that that's an interesting thing. I mean, it does seem to me that Frost is such a uh, old hand kind of episodic narrative storyteller, and uh, Lynch is many things. I do not think of him as a storyteller first. I think of him as an artist first. Um, and yeah. the way this show, uh, the production of the show happened is that a lot, there's four episodes that they added on at the last minute that they all filmed at the same time uh, that are the ones that have a very different tone than the previous 13 because George Markstein wasn't around. And mm. um, we'll, we'll, when we get to those, we'll talk about uh, how, how different they feel and how much more uh, allegorical and elusive they are uh, because they uh, are not subservient to um, a, a strict storytelling sort of uh, B-plot, C-plot kind of structure. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And, of course, this episode ends um, with my favorite thing about the show, maybe, which is the very, very tele- Terry Gilliam bit where number six's face <laughs> zooms out at us, only to be uh, have a gate come crashing down upon it. Uh, right. It is so of its time. It feels so, yeah. uh, and, and it happens so fast that you're just sitting here thinking that we're all pawns, my dear, and then all of a sudden, whoosh, uh, yep. it brings you up short. And it, his, his face. And then a giant foot coming <laughs> yeah, down from exactly. the top of the frame with the like fart sound. You were waiting is, for the uh, foot. Yeah, waiting. Uh, that's that's basically it. You're just yeah. waiting waiting for the foot. Um, is there anything else we need to touch on here on this episode that uh, is setting up? Uh, I mean, th- well, again, I, I maintain I mean, this is all set up. I, I maintain this is all about okay. uh, identifying the 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 teams and I, and a central yeah. dynamic of the show. Well, this is not a series that was made in the traditional, least American way, where there's a pilot and maybe the pilot gets picked up and then they make more. I mean, as as you said, there was a you know a, an intense production period where multiple episodes were were being shot at the same time and uh, well in advance of their eventual air date here. But this does remind me of a lot of pilots, and that the the whole premise is is there. Um, it it almost feels complete mm-hmm. in a way. I mean, you can imagine. Uh, because we don't get any any resolutions in in this one, uh, and that you know, other than just the the sort of broad conclusion that the the uh, designers of the village, uh, the the puppet masters, are are very sophisticated and have anticipated every possible move, mm-hmm. um, and that's kind of where we're going to wind up eventually. So, yeah, that's certainly uh, true. I mean, the next episode we'll be talking about was the next one that was shown, which was uh, The Chimes of Big Ben. It was not um, the second right. episode uh, filmed. And in fact, for a while there, they were going to air Dance of the Dead as the second episode, which well, was... This is what I was going to ask which you, is, is which one should we actually well, no, next? Now, on the, on the Blu-ray and on Amazon Prime, Chimes of Big Ben is the one that that comes up. Right. I, I think we should try to re- recapture the um, the air date experience, at least the American air okay. date experience. Okay. But for me, uh, Dance of the Dead was the fourth one produced, and was originally slotted to be the second episode until they realized it's too weird. It's too there's <laughs> there is too much of the uh, allegorical presence hanging over that, and we need something a little bit more simple. 
a lot more straightforward than um, than Dance of the Dead was, and and I think a lot less sinister. I think, uh, and we also have the great Liam McKern, so it's a win-win as far as uh, I'm concerned. Yes, boy, yeah, McKern is the is the number two that that lingers in my mind. I mean, I think probably because they he's the one who comes back. He's the one who's who's there in in Fallout at the end. Yeah. The strength of the show is the fact that it is constantly replacing number twos, and, and they each have a slightly different dynamic with number six um, and with their masters, or master, I suppose we should say. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, there is something so uh, charming about old Rumpole of the Bailey uh, that uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing that episode again because I haven't seen it in years. I also uh, was convinced when I saw it that it gave away the location of the village, which I re- now realize it uh, doesn't do, but we'll talk about it next week. Huh. All right. What else? Do you, do you have any, any odds and ends? Do you have any ephemera that uh, we didn't um, cover? I'm ephemera out. No, I've got nothing. Okay. So the scene in number two's, sorry, I keep, I keep conflating number six and number two. And, and number six is flat, mm-hmm. uh, where he finds he can't turn the radio off. He smashes the radio, sure. and the, the soothing classical music just gets louder. Uh, that is right out of Duck Soup, the, the Marx Brothers film. That's true. I don't know if that's uh, like an intentional pull. Mm-hmm. But uh, there it is. There it is. And uh, this is where the illusion that it's, he's, he's back in his old apartment uh, goes, disappears, because that wall uh, slides up, revealing a, uh, a, a dining room and a kitchen and a bathroom and a bedroom. And did his apartment not have any of those things? How did he not notice uh, yeah, that there was no kitchen no, that's, uh... in his well, in his apartment, I mean... You know, he, he lived for his work. Mm-hmm. Like, one of the things I, I think is more thoughtful about the, the current iteration of James Bond versus the prior iterations is in Inspector, for all that movie's flaws, when we see James Bond's flat, it right. looks like he just moved in. Like, there's, like, one chair mm-hmm. and a TV and then a bunch of boxes on the floor. It looks like he doesn't spend any time there, which, which of course, it always seemed wrong to me when, uh, when we saw Roger Moore's flat and it just... It, it looked like he had a butler. Yeah, that's uh, true. It looked it looked way too cozy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think the notion that um, when somebody is newly transported to the village, they are placed in a in a room that looks very like where they left, and then you get the big reveal. I mean, we'll see that happen again with another uh, character yeah. in a later episode. I think that's just done. I mean, f- for us to get the cool looking out the window shot, or is it? Is there some psychological? reasoning where you're trying to cushion the blow. Is that the idea here? Well, I don't know. We're, we're going to have to look for the pattern as this um, obligatory scene repeats itself. Mm-hmm. You know, look look for the, the variations on uh, the this, this initial exposure. Yep, incredulity. And the other thing we don't <laughs> have in this uh, in this episode is the classic where am I in the village, the, the back and forth, the dialogue. Yeah, which yeah. will become a linchpin of the series and will clue us in when it's gone from a single episode that something is hinky, something is up with number two. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it's uh, you don't miss it here because again you got yeah. the entire intro, right? Um, but uh, something is hinky in uh, number two, which which everyone <laughs> remembers from uh, from Hamlet. <laughs> so right. uh, right. that, uh, another poll, another uh, poll, another. You are a theater critic, I can tell, because you re- you referenced <laughs> Hamlet. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a play that I saw. <laughs> it's a movie that I saw. We see the shopkeeper, okay, who sells him the map. That shopkeeper will come back. Um, he, he'll, he's actually, the next time we see the shop, I think he's still there. Uh, and uh, he's the guy in uh, Hammer into Anvil who's still 
running that shop. Uh, yeah. And he gives him the sign of, uh, it's basically what, what we would call today an okay sign, uh, uh, be seeing you, um, which mm-hmm. is also emblematic of the series. We will jete right past the fact that it's also now a white power symbol. <laughs> We're going to yeah. get right past that because apparently an actress who worked on Dance of the Dead found Maguna, particularly a uh, religious man, and she asked him what this was about. And he said, and again, he gave many different answers to this question when asked, but one of them was that it was a uh, signal of uh, first century Christians, uh, the symbol of the fish with the uh, the two arcs kind of coming together. Ichthus, it is called. Uh, who knows? Who knows what it is? It's probably just something he came up with, but it's there now. It's part of the, well, part of the uh, lore. Uh, okay, so, so a thought that I want to leave you with uh, in, until next week. That same scene that uh, ends with uh, our first utterance of be seeing you from from the shopkeeper. Um, But it begins with the shopkeeper telling a lady, help yourself to a pineapple, man. Now, had that become the famous character (laughs) from this show, what would be different? There's a a line in 2001, see you next Wednesday, Mm -hmm. that uh, that lots of, or maybe it's talk to you next Wednesday. God, I should really get this right. But uh, that a lot of other filmmakers have, have continually echoed as a little, I don't know, a dumb joke, a little signifier of something um well if they had traded the uh, the penny farthing for the pineapple i mean we wouldn't be able to look at spongebob the same way today that's certainly true i (laughs) the woman in in that scene no no one has ever been more delighted to to be offered a free pineapple (laughs) than another bernie williams uh williamsism as uh like he sort of points out the flaw that that they again and again suggest that the the village is an island, although the the map, <laughs> both maps, mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that uh, number six briefly peruses show that it, that it clearly is not. And uh, it, it made me think of uh, one time when I was watching Aliens with the James Cameron commentary track on, and they get to the scene where they're they're preparing their defenses and you know welding over the air ducts and getting ready to make their last stand. And Cameron is bemoaning the facts, like, well, if you look closely at the blueprint, you can see it doesn't match the building that they're in. And uh, I always hated that, but you're just going to have to forgive that. I, I feel like the difference between a, an island and not an island is a bit more noticeable <laughs> to the casual viewer. Yeah, see, that didn't bug me, because even though it is, because there's mountains. Like, you know, mount, islands have mountains. So how, yeah. what's to say? Being, I, I mean, they're, they're, the they're clearly labeled as the mountains. They are clearly labeled as the mountains in Albertus. That's a that's a callback. That's a callback. That's right. That's what it was. All right. Do you have outro music? A Degree Absolute was conceived by Glenn Weldon and is produced by me, Chris Klemick. You can email the Citizens Advice Bureau at adegreeabsolute at gmail.com. You can tweet us at not a number pod. As ever, Glenn and I would like to thank our families without whose unfailing support this project could never have come to fruition that's another mistake they made get out the room tone is the zoom tone for making love <laughs>